Now you talk about terror. Welcome to another podcast from the Chris Hedges Report. What about me? I'm Chris Hedges, and you can find more of my work at chrishedges.substack.com. I carried copies of William Shakespeare's plays and the conflicts in Central America, the Middle East, and the Balkans. When I was taken prisoner by the Iraqi Republican Guard in Basra during the Shiite uprising following the first Gulf War, I had a copy of Antony and Cleopatra in the pocket of my M65 field jacket along with Homer's The Iliad. Sigmund Freud turned to Shakespeare along with the Greek myths to lay the foundations for Freudian psychoanalysis. Karl Marx liberally quoted from Shakespeare using The Merchant of Venice to explain economic theory. Writers such as Charles Dickens built on the foundations of Shakespeare. Herman Melville formed his characters in Moby Dick from the clay of the Bible and Shakespeare. Perhaps only the Bible rivals Shakespeare in its archetypal significance. Shakespeare invented thousands of words that remain part of our vocabulary, gloomy, monumental, castigate, assassination, addiction, cold-blooded, to name a few. His power as a writer came not only from the beauty of his poetry, but his deep understanding of the ambiguities and contradictions that go into making a human being and a human society. He grasped that human history is merely itself. It moves towards no goal. The universe is morally neutral. The gods favor you one day and turn their back on you the next. As flies to wanton boys are we to the gods, Gloucester says, they kill us for their sport. Good does not always triumph, indeed, is often no match when pitted against murderous tyrannies. Anthony, in the play Anthony and Cleopatra, embraces love and passion and loses empire. Like Dido, by surrendering, surrendering to love, he is no match for Octavius's single-minded quest for power. Shakespeare brought hundreds of characters to life. King Lear, Hamlet, Macbeth, Cleopatra, Malvolio, Falstaff, Romeo, Juliet, Othello and created narratives of such power that they continue to haunt our imaginations. Joining me to discuss William Shakespeare and its importance is David Herskovich, the founder and artistic director of Target Margin Theater, and the actor Eunice Wong, to whom I'm married. Target Margin will mount a production of the play Pericles at the Doxy Theater in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, starting on February 25th and running through March 26th. You can find out more at targetmargin.org. So I'll open with you, Eunice. This Harold Goddard's book, which we both like very much, The Meaning of Shakespeare, describes Shakespeare as an oracle. Uh, And I wonder if you agree, and if so, why? I would agree with that. I mean, an oracle is traditionally something that is prophetic, um, ambiguous, and requiring interpretation, usually by priests. I think you could say all of that of Shakespeare. Um, but also, what you have in Shakespeare is this enormous canon of plays that are incredibly wide-ranging. And, uh, you know, Harold Bloom said that Shakespeare invented psychoanalysis, that Freud just codified it. Um, Freud is essentially prosified Shakespeare. So if you have this body of work that is so multifaceted in uh, human behavior— you know, and we haven't changed that much in the last 500 years in terms of human behavior, you're going to find a lot of answers to human mysteries within that canon of 
psychoanalysis. Um, so yeah, I, I would agree with that. There's, there's plenty to interpret. There's a lot of truth and wisdom um, <clears throat> and a lot of mystery. You know, so I, I think that would qualify as an oracle. What about you, David? Well, I mean, as usual, and I know you know it well, Chris, Eunice is right. Um, and um, I think that that's right. If, you know, if we accept, as I believe, that the depth, richness, complexity, and nuance of human experience in all of its diversity is represented by Shakespeare as in no other writer that I know, then, and we accept that a wise man once said what's past is prologue, then surely these works have oracular power. So I'm going to ask this question, David. Shakespeare's plays deal repeatedly uh, with a subject that dominates uh, Greek drama, and that's the very fraught relationship between older and younger generations. Uh, This is an inherent tension, central to King Lear, Romeo and Juliet, The Tempest, but of course, Pericles as well. Uh, And and, uh, I wondered if you could talk about that tension. Oh, boy. Um, Yes. Uh, Where to begin? I mean, you mentioned King Lear, actually, and to me, that's always the play that, that personally crystallizes this, this question. You know, it ends, Lear ends with lines, and I, forgive me if I paraphrase, but, um, you know, I think the last line is, we that are young shall never see so much nor live so long. Um, the oldest have born nest, born most. We that are young shall never live so much nor, nor, um, shall never see so much nor live so long. The, the point being that, Obviously, King Lear, we know, is a very old man, and it's about him handing off power to his children, succession, right? Um, and so not just the transfer of power, but generational transfer of power. But then the question of aging and youth and how we mature into that and who, you know, what that means, I think, in that and how, how power is shared or not shared, acknowledged or not acknowledged between generations. So I guess in particular that dimension of uh, authority and power. It, it's, it, you know, King Lear is, is sort of the touchstone for me. Now, in the play that Eunice and I are working on presently, Pericles, I think that that story has a much more personal and kind of a familial and intimate um, dimension. Eunice, please chime in because I want to know if you agree or if you feel it that way. But, but here, you know, first of all, the action of the play happens over time and we watch this hero, Pericles, age over time. Go, You know, we begin with Prince Pericles seeking a wife, essentially, seeking a partner, and then finding, and then going through these stages of losing, having a child, losing the child, losing the wife, losing it all. Time, uh, time goes on and on, and then regaining those things. Um, and again, I, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but but the the, the, the sort of gorgeous and fabulous and fable-like way in which those, that very simple relationship, parent, partner, child, is, is opened up, is I think you could say what the play is about. Yeah, I've Eunice addressed this, but it seems that, it, I mean, Romeo and Juliet would be the perfect example, but there's 
often it appears in the plays this inability on the part of different generations to understand each other. Yeah, Elizabeth Winkler talks about the problem of authority gone archaic in Shakespeare, usually the authority almost always being an older generation position of power um, and patriarchal. And so just a couple of examples, you have, you know, Juliet and Hermia's fathers demanding that they marry someone they don't want to marry, or or, uh, Desdemona's father demanding that she not marry who she wants to marry, Um, or Lear, of course, is like, you know, the big example, demanding falseness from his daughter. Um, So that issue of the younger generation rebelling against the older is all through Shakespeare. But what I find really fascinating is that that is not in Pericles. Um, Parent-child relationships are represented throughout, but it's more like we see different examples of the parent-child bond and how that can manifest in, in so many different ways from evil and abusive to incredibly healing. Um, but there actually isn't a lot of filial rebellion, which is kind of interesting against the backdrop of, of all his other plays. I, I'm not sure yet what to make of that, um, but I, I note it because it's so unusual in his, in his works. So let me follow up, Eunice. The 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 later plays, uh, and this is either you know we don't finally there's not we don't know uh, who actually wrote the Shakespeare plays, but we'll just go with the traditional belief that it was Will Shakespeare. It may have been a group of people. It may have been someone else. Uh, but following the death of uh, Shakespeare's only son Hamlet in 1596. At the age of 11, there are these series of reunions, almost resurrections, you know, such as in The Winner's Tale, in Pericles, um, this miraculous rebirth. And I wondered if you could address, which is certainly part of Pericles, uh, both with Pericles' daughter, Marina, and wife, who he thinks are, are both dead. But can you talk about that aspect of later Shakespeare? Yes. So the resurrection motif in Shakespeare's later plays, which are often called the romances, is my favorite Shakespeare motif. However, historically, I just want to point out that Hamnet died in 1596, as you said. So he's this 11-year-old boy. He dies. And the, the years that follow immediately afterwards, his death, Shakespeare came out with his most rollicking comedies, Merry Wives of Windsor, Much Ado About Nothing, As You Like It, um, and it's not until 10 years or so after Hamlet's death that the heavier plays come out and the romances don't come out until the, the end of, you know, the tail end of this body of work, which is really interesting because the, the plays don't quite seem to be in alignment with that uh, historical event of his son's death. Um, but going back to the resurrection theme in the later plays, uh, it's, it's incredibly moving to me that whoever wrote these plays as time went on seems to become almost obsessed with this idea of regaining a beloved who was lost. Um, you mentioned Winter's Tale uh, and Pericles, of course. 
It's also in Twelfth Night, you know, to regain a lost brother, a lost sister. Um, <clears throat> and I don't, I haven't found much scholarly about it, but as an actor, certainly that stuff is gold because talk about human experience, like who, what human being has not lost something and wished to regain it, wished to have that second chance, you know, and something as momentous as the life of, of a loved one. So. Let me just, uh, you and I both saw Mark Rylance in Twelfth Night uh, with that scene at the end. I'll let you explain it. But what was so brilliant was the reaction uh, upon recognizing yeah. That, yeah, I'll let you explain it. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, just a quick recap. This is Twelfth Night. This is a comedy. Um, there's, there's a shipwreck, as there is in Pericles. Uh, and there is a set of twins, Viola and Sebastian, uh, who are separated and each believe that the other is dead. At the end of the play, spoiler alert, they're reunited. Um, and... As an actor, I've always felt that that moment of reunion, whether it's Twelfth Night or Pericles or whatever, the complex emotions that must be going on at that point are immense. And, you know, on the top surface of our brains, we think, oh, joy, reunion, uh, to, to have my brother back. It's just, it's, it's wonderful, Right. But what this production did, and which I've always felt in my gut should be the case as an actor, is that it's a reordering of reality and of your world. If you have, if you have struggled with accepting the news of your, say, your brother's death, right, and you are on your way to building that into your reality, into your world... And then all of a sudden you find out, oh, wait, he's not dead. What are those emotions? And I think that woven into that is fear and terror. And for many reasons, because maybe biggest of all is, can I open my heart to this possibility? Because if it's wrong, I have to deal with that loss all over again. And so in this staging, from what I remember, Violet tried to run out of the room and was stopped by the Duke and had to turn back to confront the person she thought could be her dead brother. And that just struck true, incredibly true to me as, you know, a psychologically full portrait of a human being in this situation to experience first that terror of, my heart can't take this. I've already constructed this life without my brother in it. I can't deal and I'm leaving. David, I want to ask you about the themes of chaos and anarchy, um, which I think in most Shakespeare plays are painted as forces that uh, plant the seeds of tyranny. At the same time, Shakespeare and saw power and privilege as forms of blindness, cutting us off from the world uh, and uh, from ourselves, uh, this is uh, you see this in King Lear. Uh, you see it in uh, Pericles with Antiochus, um, and this 
and this kind of callousness uh, that uh, uh, on the part of the powerful who the longer they're in power uh, begin to treat uh, those around them as objects or pawns. Uh, I think that ability to see, which is, of course, again, a central theme of King Lear, is possible only when power is stripped away. Uh, and that's where you get the wisdom of fools, clowns, Kent, Macduff's wife, uh, before she and her children are murdered when she says, whither should I fly? I have done no harm, but I remember now I am in this earthly world where to do harm is often laudable to be good, sometime accounted dangerous folly. Can you talk about those themes of uh, chaos, anarchy, and power? Goodness, of course. Um, and thank you for laying out such a rich field of reference, uh, Chris. The, you know, I, I, that, the, the last um, scene you remember, that moment, whither shall I fly, is, I, I feel that very strongly. We're reminded of a world that really is um, terrifying in the most random and chaotic way. And, and yet, and yet also, the plays seek and create a universe that harmonizes and has its own restorative and healing mysteries. And Pericles, in particular, I think, achieves both of those things. I'm reminded, for example, of the image in Shakespearean plays of the storm. I mean, there's one play that's called The Storm, essentially, The Tempest, of course, but we think of Lear on the Heath, and in our play, Pericles' life is changed profoundly by a storm that he experiences at sea that robs him effectively of his entire family, um, or so it seems. Um, and so what is that image of chaos, brutal chaos and destruction in the universe? And yet, a sense as emerges in Pericles that there is a music of the spheres, that the spheres will harmonize. And if we can only attune ourselves to it and people who can connect to that mystery um, can draw things together and heal. Um, as a purely political matter, um, which you're referencing, there, you know, I, I mean, as with everything in these plays, the contradictions are immense. So yes, I, I recognize what you're saying about the corruptions of power uh, and so on. And yet in, I mean, um, there's so much tension in the play but, and a pull toward um, what I'm going to call the kind of mirror for magistrates uh, tradition in so much Renaissance literature. So you get it in the Shakespearean history plays, for instance, plays that are explicitly seem to problematize what it is that makes a good ruler, but therefore implicitly valorizing that kind of structure, do you know? And then, of course, plays that peel it apart much more aggressively. Um, and both at the same time. And so that complexity and contradiction to me is very exciting. Um, uh, I've always, one of the plays that I'm fascinated by in, in this regard, among others, is Coriolanus, right? Where you get uh, an individual who, are, who, for whatever reasons, which are complicated and about are personal to him, perhaps, will not play ball with the political system that he's handed and therefore has to be ejected from it. I, they banish him and he turns around famously and says to the city of Rome, I banish you <laughs> while he's being banished from it. And yet that play resolves with him somehow finding his way back 
arguably by reconnecting to the people, by reimagining what that political structure and power is in a very powerful way. Um, it's a tragedy. He doesn't survive it. But there is a sense at the end that somehow his triumph is in reconnecting to the people of Rome in a different way um, that's, that's less corrupted by those structures as they existed. Anyway, that's, that's my own, um, you know, cobbled reading of that play uh, in this moment. So let me ask you, David, specifically about Pericles. It uh, was one of the most popular plays before the theaters were closed in 1642. It opens with the appearance on stage of this single figure, this long-dead 14th-century poet, John Gower, who directs the play, kind of like the stage manager in our town. Uh, the opening monologue is from an old folk song that was sung at festivals and pre-fasting evenings and holidays. Uh, it would have been a very familiar part of Elizabethan communal celebrations, which was recited for its restorative power. Uh, it has an opening line in Latin, the more ancient, a good thing is the better. Uh, Pericles itself is a very old tale, probably from an ancient Greek romance. Its structure in many ways resembles these miracle or saints plays, uh, which like all church festivals were outlawed by the Puritans two years later in 1644. I'm wondering uh, with the plague we currently endure of social isolation, uh, with the complex kind of uh, social unmooring, rupture of social bonds, uh, uh, loss of a sense of the past, if all of these figured into your decision to do a play about love, loss, and restoration? Chris, profoundly, profoundly. Um, I think that this play, which I've been interested in for a long time, has called me so clearly right now for exactly the reasons that you're, that you're mentioning. And, and even, let me add a detail that, that maybe helps to, um, clarify it. It seems almost certain that Pericles was first performed in a relatively brief interval in 1608 between periods when the theaters were shut for the plague. Um, so there is this moment of opening up when this story was offered to people. Um, in the midst of, of plague on, on both sides of it, after it and before it. Um, and uh, it, there's, no, there's no question to me that that's what is especially moving and resonant about the play now, that it conjures up those things. You, I absolutely concur with many scholars and with you in feeling the structure of it as like a kind of miracle play, as like the sort of life of a saint almost. You see an individual who suffers, who experiences these, it's very episodic, you know? We go to different places and these very intense moving things happen, each one in its own frame. Um, and yet there's a kind of spiritual progression from there. And that circles back to one of the great themes of this play and structures of it, which is of healing, of the cure of cure, you know, there are these figures who are curative, who cure one particular character named Ceremon, we know is a healer explicitly, but there's also the sense, maybe more powerfully to me, that the young daughter of Pericles and Thaisa, Marina, is herself a healer, that somehow she is, and as she grows through the play, becomes an increasingly powerful healer, a person who has, who has the cure for those she encounters. And at the end, culminating in, in her own father, who it turns out needs her. The child, you know, the child is his father 
his own phone. Eunice, I want to ask you about Goddard uses this idea that imagination is what he calls the elemental speech in all senses, the first and the last of primitive man and the poets. Uh, can you just talk about the importance of the power of imagination? Yes. I love thinking about theater as an empathy machine um, where you have a bunch of human beings in a room together and you tell each other stories and you use the power of imagination to imagine that you are in that story, that you are experiencing these events and it changes you um, just by the act of imagination. And so if you can imagine what it means to be someone else who's very different from you, that affects the way that you engage with the world as a whole, right? Not just in the theater, but when you step out of the theater to engage with real human beings in your own life, the theater has maybe exercised those muscles of empathy and you can begin to imagine what it is to be someone who has very different circumstances from you, comes from somewhere else, has had a very different upbringing, has different beliefs than you. And without, uh, without empathy or without imagination, we're all back in that isolation that you were talking about. We're all in our own little boxes and unable to reach outside of it. The thing that allows us to reach outside of it is imagination. I'm going to ask you, Eunice, to close by reading this reunion scene uh, between Pericles and Marina. And I should note we named our daughter Marina from the play. Um, so just explain briefly where we are and then if you could just read that passage. Yes. Uh, so more spoilers. Um, this is the end of the play. And Pericles believes that his daughter, Marina, is dead. He hasn't seen her since she was an infant. Um, for many reasons, she was left with uh, another royal couple to be raised, and he was informed three months before the scene that she had died. So he enters the scene believing that his daughter is dead, his wife died many years ago, um, and in the course of this scene, he meets this girl, and through their exchanges, he pieces together who she is, which is his daughter. And let me just interject there. He hasn't spoken for the last three months. Correct. So for those three months, when he learned of his daughter's supposed death, he stopped speaking. Um, and it actually... It echoes back a bit to what I was saying about what emotional complexity do you go through when you're confronted with a loved one com come back to life. Uh, and I think these lines capture that. Can I, can I just, before you start reading it, it reminds me very much when in the Gospels, when the disciples see the resurrected Christ, they don't believe it. Um, and they ask to see the nail marks on the hands. And in the lead up to this, Pericles does the same thing. It's all these questions. He, he, he seeks to uh, almost test her because he can't believe it. 
yes. Oh, there's a lot of testing in this scene. But finally, it becomes irrefutable even to him that this is his child. And so he calls his, uh, his right-hand man, Helicanus, who has been with him all of his life as a prince, and he, he says this speech to Helicanus. O Helicanus, strike me, honored sir. Give me a gash, put me to present pain, lest this great sea of joys rushing upon me or bear the shores of my mortality and drown me with their sweetness. O come hither, thou that begetst him that did thee beget, thou that wast born at sea, buried at Tarsus, and found at sea again. O Helicanus, down on thy knees, thank the holy gods as loud as thunder threatens us. This is Marina. That's one of the most beautiful passages in Shakespeare, I think. Thank you. That was David Herskovitz, the founder and artistic director of Target Margin Theater and the actor Eunice Wong. Uh, They were performing Pleroclis at the Doxy Theater in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, starting on February 25th and running through March 26th. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, Dwayne Gladden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrisedges.substack.com. Thank you.